So, we're going to talk a lot more about this later, but this is the first episode that was really impacted by the great 1988 writer's strike. Now, I'll be bringing that up again in the future because that writer's strike uh, completely and utterly changed the history of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I mean that with total sincerity. For now, in the earlier episodes towards the end of Season 1, all it really did was have a slight impact on production schedule timelines, and we'll get to that later. I'm not going to talk too many details about the strike right now. It was a five-month strike, and it ended right about when they were basically starting work on... Or, excuse me, I'm saying this wrong. When they were pushing out uh, some of the episodes that were going to be going live for Season 2. So you can kind of see how it was impacting even the end of Season 1, for reasons obvious. Now, <laughs> I mentioned last episode what I liked about the whole martial arts tournament thing. The whole that, that apartment complex thing is something that's just, as I've been going through this, it's more and more forming in my mind the idea of, of this neighborhood, of this community, of these people who interact with each other. I love the idea that there's enough people, in this case just two, although later we'll find out it goes up to three, but there's enough people interested in fencing to actually have fencing matches. There's just something kind of cool about that. I also want to give huge props to the uh, prop department, because in the background they have this scoreboard that they specially designed just for this. And if you'll notice, when someone t- gets a hit on, there's a little red light that le- lights up too. Now, it's actually fairly simple, because they know where the light is going to happen, and it's all pre-set up, but they managed to time it pretty well. And it's a nice little effect. It's, it's a little thing, but little things matter. So... Welcome to our first Time episode in Star Trek The Next Generation. Time and Star Trek have always had a little bit of a weird relationship with each other, and people's opinions I've noticed very extensively on the quality or the validity of that. Now, I have a little bit of a reputation for being a little bit more of a stickler when it comes to time travel than most other things when it comes to fiction. Ships... You know, ships, setting, time travel. That's probably my three big things right there. And I mention that because they do actually kind of violate their own premises of time travel a couple of times in this episode. But that's okay. It's just, I just wanted to comment on that and get out of the way. Oh my gosh, you're on attack. Mm, sorry, I haven't been sleeping much lately. <clears throat> Trying to crank these episodes out. Now, one thing we could say very definitively is the Time Traveler's Exemption Clause is in full effect in this episode. For those of you not aware of what that means, the Time Traveler's Exemption Clause means anybody who does time travel is not affected by time travel. Par exemple, if I go back in time and kill Hitler, because that's what you do, right, and come back to the present, I still have full memory of going back in time, killing Hitler, and my original timeline. I am segregate from the alterations to time, regardless of which of the three types of time travel we're using, and ergo, I still have full memory of myself. I am unaltered. That's the Time Traveler's Exemption Clause. So, we see this a couple of times, but probably the most definitive example is actually the Turbolift, where they see... (coughs) where they see themselves and react to themselves, even though what they're technically doing is altering the past, which will then counter-interact with the future, and... You know, we'll get there later. There's a couple of nice little subtle touches I want to mention. When they hear, you know, Dr. Mannheim, when that comes up, Picard noticeably and visibly reacts. 
But it's actually kind of a subtle thing. Because Stuart almost always has that austere look when he's on the bridge. And so it just kind of shifts from austere to, oh. And I wanted to give credit to Troy as well, or rather to Marina Sirtis, because she looks at him, and then there's this kind of, wait, what? You can almost see it on her expression. Now later they call more attention to that when she literally pulls him aside on the back of the bridge. But I just wanted to give quite a little praise to that little reaction moment there. Now... It takes them a few hours, around three hours, based on what they say, in order to finish going from where they were to where the time distortions are, right? And I mention that because usually I'm the kind of person who tries to pay attention to warp speeds and distances because setting and shifts, you know, I mentioned earlier. In this case, I'm not here to nitpick. I'm here to praise because, and they actually say this, unfortunately, flat out later, but it gives an idea of the scope of how far these time distortions are actually reaching, because a few hours at warp 8 is a nice, big, long chunk of distance. And that's just linearly. Think about this this way, to explain this a little bit better. Um, <clears throat> me going from point A to point B, that's a nice, big, long distance, in this case already. But the point is, those distortions have reached from point B, actually, it's more like from point C, because remember, there's a little route thing. But the, the, the distortions have reached from here all the way to me at point A, which means they have reached in that way in all directions. There is a sphere going out, at least to the point where I was at, of affected space. An absolutely enormous amount of space. I've heard some people theorize when they're talking about discussing this episode that these time distortions are hitting everywhere simultaneously. I'm curious what you guys think of that. It would be interesting to think about Jem'Hadar over in the Gamma Quadrant at this point in time, you know, fighting some kind of fight against, you know, someone who's rebelling, and then all of a sudden, and they just kind of repeat the last few seconds. Or what the Borg would think of this as they're hanging out over in the Delta Quadrant. You know, just, just food for thought. <clears throat> and, of course, the prophets would be like, huh, did something happen? Because they wouldn't notice anything. Anyways. <clears throat> One little small note I want to make here is that they bother to... Picard, when he goes to the holodeck, he bothers to check if anyone's in there. I know that's a really minor point to bring, but I like it because little attentions to detail like that are the kind of things I enjoy in my fiction. And it's basic courtesy if you think about it. I mean, if you just barged into the holodeck, wouldn't that be incredibly rude? And yes, I know that they do that later. Cough, cough, Barkley. But still, I mean, isn't that just common courtesy? Knock, 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 hello. <clears throat> It'd be like barging into the bathroom without checking if anyone's in there first. Except potentially worse. Anyways. Now, I do have one quick thing. As I actually jotted a note down here about how bizarrely accurate the computer managed to make the recreation. He asks for a specific time, at a specific day, at a specific location. And the computer's like, yeah, sure, I can do that. My first thought when I was watching this as a kid was to be amazed at how accurate the records that the Enterprise computer keeps. Looking back with the advantage of hindsight and the rest of Star Trek, I think it's a little bit more likely that what we're looking at is the computer extrapolating based on what it does know. Okay, I know what that area looks like. Um, let's pull some random seeded NPCs here to pull in here. And he probably wants it to be a nice day, so we'll go ahead and make it a nice day. He didn't specify the weather, after all. You know, I, I don't think it literally knows the exact circumstances of the situation. Now... 
I point that out because later on we talk to Janice, or rather Janice explains that it was raining all day that day. And I, I, I love that little juxtaposition there, the idea of this big, bright, beautiful Paris and the wonderful, you know, the, 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 the open balcony bar. No, it was pouring rain and she was probably sitting there absolutely miserable all day. Nice contrast. I'll get more to that later because that's much further in the episode. But I also want to comment how interesting it is how easily Picard opens up to, well, what is effectively a random stranger. Two random strangers, actually. Something about that appeals to me. It has been stated before, although I have found in my personal experience between interacting with other people and observing people that this varies from person to person, that if you're talking to a complete stranger, it's easier to do so. In other words, if you talk to, you know, if I've got, uh, I don't know, let me make something up here. Um, <clears throat> if I'm secretly Kefka, right, and I'm really wanting to, exp you know, I, I talk about this to somebody, I, you don't understand, I've, I've, I put on the clown makeup and I go around and I kill hundreds of people, it's horrible. <laughs> this is the dumbest analogy I've ever used. If I'm secretly Kefka... Hypothetically, it would be harder for me to open up about this to someone I know or someone I trust because I care about that person, because I care about what they think about me, because I'm concerned or afraid they're going to judge me for being a mass-murdering psychopath. This is not a great analogy, but you get my point, right? <clears throat> the idea being there's more risk there. I don't want to lose this friendship or my family or my relationship or whatever connection of trust you have to this person. By contrast, a complete stranger, well, who cares what they think? And thus it is easier to open up to a complete stranger. At least that's the theory. Again, I have seen that that's not always true. It varies from person to person, blah, blah, blah. I also have a pen on my floor. Now, ugh. I mentioned that because it makes me think how interesting it would be for extensive and indeed deliberate use of the holodeck as a counseling or psych psychiatric tool. Maybe, because this is actually a step further from a complete stranger. You're basically talking to the computer if you really break it down. So imagine a counselor, like Troy, saying, all right, you know, I, I know you want to talk about this, but you're not really quite feeling the opening up for me, so I'm going to put up a program and it's going to generate a completely random individual who is going to be able to talk to you and, and react to you. But they're just a computer program. I'm outside here. I'm not listening in. You can, you can unload and vent whatever you need to and explain that and talk it out and try to express yourself and work your way through it to what is effectively a wall, just a wall that happens to be talking back to you and expressing and interacting with you in a way that is believable enough to trick you into thinking you're talking to a person with all the benefits of the random stranger. Just interesting food for thought on the utilization of the holodeck. I don't think we ever really see that throughout the course of the series. I think they do use the holodeck a couple times as a counseling technique, but like twice ever, and I'm pretty sure it was related to Barclay in both cases. Anyways, <clears throat> now... I have a note here that I'm just going to comment on. It's amusing to me that the random straight jersey outfit, the random blonde woman that he talks to, her outfit looks so uncomfortable. Like, I feel, I feel like that poor actress is just sitting there, like, fidgeting, like, scratch, scratch, come on. <laughs> Anyways. So, 
it's actually kind of amusing how uncomfortable Picard is in several of his things. He's I wouldn't I don't I won't hesitate I hesitate to call him fully awkward. I don't want to say that he's emotionally uh, destabilized so much as not in control of himself as he should be. Credit to Patrick Stewart's acting on that part. He is clearly energized in this whole thing. Let's go, let's go, let's get this done. Bam, bam, bam. But at the same time, when it comes to it, he's just like, hmm. And it's a great parallel uh, to the kind of emotions that, that he presents himself. And by parallel, I mean example. I'm just losing my words today. I'm sorry. Who needs sleep, right? I also really like Crusher's reactions to his reactions to her. I'm going to skip ahead of my notes a little bit. Later on, she says something. I wrote down the quote <sighs> somewhere. I can't compete with a ghost from his past. That's the quote I wanted to write there and right there. That quote I wanted to really draw your attention to. I know, I know, Crusher Picard shipping, blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I'm just pointing this out as a neutral observer because... It is very clear that at least several people in the writer's room were very deliberately kind of pushing Crusher and Picard together, which is almost funny given how that will basically go nowhere for the entire series of the show. But the mere fact that Crusher states, and I'm going to do this once again, word for word, I can't compete with a ghost from his past. The fact that Troy was concerned enough to go talk to Crusher about this shows that Troy is also cognizant of the Crusher crushing on Picard situation. I shouldn't even call it crushing. That's really not a, an apt analogy. These are both people who have passed middle age, who are you know, seasoned and veteran enough to actually know what they want and whom they want, and to try to pursue an actual relationship rather than a fling. And you get that impression that Crusher does legitimately want something real with Picard. And for whatever reason, I mean, I already talked about this. They just kind of decided to throw this out the window. It's also funny, um, I was looking this up, and it turns out the writers of this episode were two women. Now, I only bring that up because apparently they wanted this episode to have a little bit more, uh, I guess, raunchiness is the word I want to use. And it was actually the men in the writer's room who felt uncomfortable with that. And Patrick Stewart himself. Now, I'm putting, like, a big asterisk by all this because I'm not sure how much I believe any of that. I mean, obviously, the writers were women. We know that. But that just sounds like an anecdotal story. And I wasn't find, able to find anything that backed it up. But to me, I think the more interesting dynamic here, and this kind of goes back to the female writer situation, is from the perspective of that dialogue between Crusher and Troy. It's a shame that scene is so short. So she starts off, I can't compete with a ghost from his past. And then Troy says, yeah, but this is a little bit different. There's, she's actually here. She's not a ghost. And Crusher's response is, yes, but he's actually seeing the ghost. He's not seeing her. Remember, it's been 22 years since these two were a thing. That is a long damn time. I imagine 22 years is the bulk of most of your guys' lives. It is certainly the bulk of mine. I was quite, I was in my teens 22 years ago, you know? So that is a hellacious amount of time for someone to change and alter and move and to move on. It's funny to me because that, to me, 
basically feels like the first stepping stone of a greater build-up to what would eventually become an actual relationship between Crusher and Picard. Which, of course, we know never happened, but you get where I'm going with this. I want to bring up that 22 years thing really quick, actually. I decided to geek out for a little bit. I know that's strange, me geeking out of my show. 22 years ago is when he didn't show up at the bar. That means he and her were already an item before that, to some extent or another. We don't know how long. I decided to actually look up some dates. Uh, first of all, the first thing I want to comment on as I was looking this up is that Bashir was born one year before that incident. If you ever wondered of the age discrepancy, Bashir was one year old, roughly, when Picard was was turning was was standing up his date at the at the cafe. Anyways, Wesley is sixteen as of season one TNG. That means Wesley was born obviously several years after this incident. That also means Jack and Crusher were together, and we know of course Jack dies significantly further down the line. But I bring this up because by most accounts, including this episode, it seems that Picard and Crusher hadn't even met twenty two years ago that they met later on, probably as a direct connection to the fact that Picard was connected to Jack, her husband, right? That makes sense. But that's not the part that really weirds me out. The part that really weirds me out is that Picard was a lieutenant commander on the Stargazer 33 years ago, which is a lot bigger than a mere chunk of my life, for example. I would have been a child at that point in time. So I decided to look that up a little bit further. It turns out in the year 2333 is when the incident, uh, the Battle of... Oh, I can't remember the name of the place. The Battle of Doom. Everyone's going to give me the name now. <laughs> Every time I forget a name, everyone comments giving me the name. The Battle of Doom happened where... The Battle of Yonkers, there we go. Where uh, Picard took command and officially became captain of the Stargazer. 2342 was the Paris incident with, with the date. Nine years later. Now, nine years isn't quite the same scope as the other dates we've been talking, but I want you to think about how long of a period of time nine years is. To give you a little bit of perspective, uh, nine years is basically longer, at least as of when the show ended, than Picard has been captain of the Enterprise. As in, he was captain of the Stargazer for longer than he was captain of the Enterprise when he stood her up. You follow me? At first, I was pointing this out because the timelines didn't seem to gel for me. That felt really weird. Like, he was really willing to, to be with someone. He decided to, 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 to abandon her and flee off when he's already a captain and a seasoned captain. Nine years vet at this point. Then I started thinking about it. And actually, I think that, actually, that makes a little bit more sense than I gave it credit for. Because to me, that means more that this is kind of closer to a... I hesitate to use the term midlife crisis because a lot of negative and inaccurate connotations are attached to that terminology. But basically that, the idea of, well, is this really what I want to do? Remember, a couple years after the Paris incident is when he was legitimately considering abandoning Starfleet and switching over to an archaeology career, as we'll find out in a future episode. So the idea that this is a point in his life where he isn't sure what he wants, where he isn't sure what he wants to do, a successful captain? But remember, a captain for nine years. He's made it. He's done his bid for king and country, if you will. 
it's not that out of bounds, I think, that at this point he would be questioning, do I want to keep doing this? Now, we know the path he chose. He didn't go with archaeology and he didn't go with her. He went with Starfleet, and he continued to commit himself to the role. I'm curious what you guys think. Is this a discrepancy of writers not comparing notes, or do you think this fits in nicely with the characters? Another little side note here. The episode goes out of its way to compare uh, Mannheim to Picard several times, Dr. Mannheim, because both of them are very driven, almost to the point of obsessive, very duty-focused, very passionate, and obviously care a great deal about whatever it is that re is relevant to them. Neither of them uh, portray any concepts of ambivalence or apathy whatsoever. And I point that out because the episode does this rather well, I think, in portraying why Janice, uh, is that her name? God, I wrote, Janice, excuse me, Janice, is, is the kind of, we would fall in love with either of them for the same basic reasons, you know, because that is what she wanted, that is what she desired, and apparently is what she continues to desire to this day. Anyways, so this, so, whoa, whoa, yawn attack. So this episode is when we finally formally introduce the many, many parallel dimensions thing into Star Trek that will be used several times in the future in novels, in the games, and in the show itself. The most obvious example being the episode Parallels. That's the one with Worf, and Worf, and Worf, and Worf, and Worf, and Worf. And, of course, Bearded Riker. We all know that one. <laughs> I mentioned this, though, because up until now, we've basically had the two dimensions. We had the Mirror Universe, the Mirror Universe, back in... Uh, Mirror Mirror, I believe. I get the various Mirror Universe episode names mixed up, so forgive me if I'm getting the wrong name out here. But yeah, the one in TOS, and that's it. We've had time travel here and there, but it's always been the same timeline. So this is the first time we're introducing the idea that there are many. And this kind of brings a couple of scenes where we see the hiccups into account. Um, it, it, it makes some of those scenes more interesting to analyze. For example, let me go back to that turbolift scene I referenced earlier. So they say, yes, this is what's happening. Then they enter the turbolift, they keep talking, the turbolift opens, and they see them saying, yes, this is what's happening. Now what happens here is the people of the past, outside the turbolift, what they do and say changes. And the people of the future, the ones inside the turbolift, what they say and do is changed by acknowledging the past. Based on the way Star Trek approaches this multiple dimensions thing, which I admit I'm not in favor of, I'll just go and say that quickly and move on, that means we have just cr basically created another dimension, another timeline has just been crafted by that simple interaction on the turbo lift. It's interesting to think about if you're into that sort of a thing. Now, uh, give me a second, I'm checking my notes here. I talked about that, I talked about that. Um... So I have a note here. <laughs> I was going to praise the competency, because I always like competency in my fiction, where they were like, you know, we've, we've done everything we can here. We've scanned, we've tested, we've, we've analyzed him. It's time to finally do a manned mission to the outpost. It's like, okay, that makes sense. Then they try to beam down. <laughs> in a place that they know is temporally unstable in a place that has energy readings that are weird and all over the place, and has certain areas they can't even properly interact with, and security measures that they know about at this point in time, they're just going to beam down. Appropriately, oh my gosh, appropriately it goes really badly, and they nearly die. 
And I mean, after last week, I mean, shoot, it's anybody can die at this point. Although I swear I saw Yar's elbow in this episode. So maybe she's not dead after all. Maybe that's just that multiple dimensions thing. I don't know. <clears throat> I suppose I'd ex- I should explain that joke. For those of you not aware, there's a little bit of footage, very brief, uh, where Troy... Uh, is is talking to Picard, where it was actually footage from a previous episode where Denise Crosby was in the background, so you can actually see Tasha Yar back there up at Tactical. Anyways, <clears throat> I know I said I wanted her death to have significance, but not quite that way. So, I do have to give some praise to the weirdly good chemistry between Picard and, I don't know, the actress's name, the woman who plays uh, Janice. I'm not... I'm not sure how much of that is on her, though, as weird as that may sound. Because when I went back, I actually rewatched the scene of the two of them in the meeting lounge, and I realized that most of what I was liking about that scene was all on Picard. The, his reactions, his statements, the casual flippancy, the forthrightness, the ashamedness that's just on display, you know. All of that was pretty much universally on him. So I'm not actually sure there was good chemistry in that scene, now that I'm looking back on it. But that, of course, led to the Crusher scene, which then leads to Data. And I really wanted to comment on the Data scene. Actually, I really want to comment on on how incompetent Starfleet is really quick. Yeah, I know, it's kind of a running gag that an early Star Trek Starfleet is incompetent. Honestly, the more I think about it, the more I'm pretty sure that this was just a, a reaction, or excuse me, a result of the writers not really thinking things through. They need a crisis, so they arrange a crisis. And most of the writers probably don't think, well, hang on. <laughs> In this case, I'm willing to let it go a little bit, because the idea here is that Dr. Mannheim made up some theories just theories, wasn't able to back them in anything, and then ran off to go try and make those theories happen. At that point, the Federation or the Science Council or Section 31 or whoever probably just wrote them off like, yeah, okay, nutcase, whatever. But maybe I'm just a weirdo, but I'd like to think that at least some individual or some agency somewhere within the Federation would have at least tried to keep tabs on the guy because the guy was talking about time alterations and multiple dimensions and nonlinear time. And as we can see, as he messes with things, this could have caused some really bad effects across, well, an unknown period of space. So, just food for thought. And tying in with that, excuse me for skipping ahead, but right towards the end, he says, oh, yes, we must go back. We must do it again. And Picard says, in a very interesting tone, oh, yes, the Federation will want to help. I can't quite emulate his tone. I'm no Patrick Stewart. But everything I get from that line is, oh, we're going to be watching you this time. We're going to have a little bit of supervision going so you don't wreck reality again, boy. Now, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but that's exactly what I think should happen. Oh, okay, you're not a nutcase, but you're also very dangerous. How about we regulate this a little bit? Just, just food for thought? I mean, remember, Starfleet was kind of involved with the Genesis device situation because of the nature of how volatile that was, even though it was a beneficial and, you know, generally peace-inclined op- operation. It was still incredibly volatile, and therefore the kind of thing the Federation should be involved in. Just food for thought. So the last thing I want to comment on is data. And this is all I've got here. Um, first of all, yes, everyone knows the, in, the, the very, very famous problem where he says, It's me! Because I use contractions all the time! Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. 
What I really want to comment on is the scene with him and Picard before he beams down. Picard says, I want you to be on the away team alone next time. And Data says, ah, of course. I, I am just a machine, and therefore I am dispensable. First of all, credit to uh, the, way, the way that Brent Spiner says that. He doesn't say that with a trace of anger or bitterness or, you know, like resentment. It's just a statement of fact to him. It is Picard who reacts physically and emotionally and just like, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean at all, Data. And he calmly and smoothly corrects Data, saying, no, see, you're more precise, you are less affected by time, and therefore you are more likely to get this job done and job done properly. Anyone else down there might just get confused or disoriented or worse. And Data's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's the slight... I hesitate to use the word surprise in Data's tone that I really want to draw your attention to. Picard's reaction is obvious. Picard views Data as a person, or at the very least, a valuable entity, right? That's obvious. I don't think I need to make that point. It is Data who does not view himself as that and is now beginning to. And I mentioned that because Data's arc has... This is actually technically the second point, but this is, in my opinion, the first time Data's arc really starts to move forward and get to the point where we will eventually reach in the phenomenal episode uh, in Season 2. You know the one I'm talking about. <clears throat> and then they do the whole thing where we see the, the past, the present, and the future of Data. And it's the present, of course, that is the one who says, It's me! And then they do the thing, blah, blah, blah. Weird coda. Always got to have the light little joke at the end. I, I really don't like that. Like, I was actually really legitimately enjoying this episode. And then it's like... Right at the right of the thing, I'm, I'm jotting down some final notes, and then it's like, oh yeah, there's this one cafe, and you're paying, <laughs> and then off into space. It's like, God damn it, stop doing that. I'm, I'm sorry, I know it's a tiny little nitpick. It just bothers me. But I did like this episode, and I hope you've liked my discussions on it. And I hope to read your comments when we finally get there next time. <laughs>